from the stables in Milton Keynes. This is Turn Up The Volume. Welcome to a bonus edition of Turn Up The Volume with me, Nick Coffer. If you heard the last episode of Turn Up The Volume, you'll know that the Stables curates a truly wonderful festival in Milton Keynes in July called If Milton Keynes International Festival. It's a world-class celebration of the arts, culture, performance, community, dance and so much more across several venues in the city. And one such event is a brand new, specially commissioned piece of music called Forever, written by Roderick Williams with words by Romy Smith. It's been created to mark the 250th anniversary of Amazing Grace, which was written in Olney, close to Milton Keynes. It'll premiere at the Stables on Saturday, July the 22nd. Roderick Williams, better known as Roddy, is one of the foremost opera singers in the world, a magical baritone who sung in all the world's great venues. He's also a composer, and he sat down to talk to me about Forever for that special festival edition of the podcast. In the end, we chatted for over an hour, way more than the 10 minutes we needed Hence this little bonus podcast for you. So let's hear from Roddy. Soon we'll hear about that new piece of music and what Roddy hopes to achieve with it. But I wanted to find out a little bit more about Roddy himself, his passion for making the arts accessible to all, his love of opera, and first, a little look at what's been an incredible year so far, including a leading role in the King's coronation. Roddy takes up the story. Quite a year indeed. There are high points in anyone's career, and certainly singing at the King's Coronation is, is I, I, when I say as high as it's going to get, when I'm, I always like to think I'm going to go on to achieve great things, but I don't know what will top that. And uh, also writing a piece of music for the Coronation as well. So I was involved uh, twice over, which was a massive compliment. Just to, to think, first of all, that the King knows who you are is one thing, and that he's reached out for two different things. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a great affirmation for me. How does it happen, Roddy? Do you, do you get a, a WhatsApp message? Does your agent get an email? Do you get a, a letter? Does a pigeon deliver a missive? How, how does it all come together? A good old-fashioned phone call. A good old-fashioned phone call. And uh, uh, the only thing that was unusual about these ones is that they said, uh, we need to speak to you in strictest confidence. So it was all hush-hush. I couldn't tell anybody about it. I have to admit, between you and me and, and any listeners, I did tell my wife, but I then swore her to secrecy, obviously. We both signed NDAs and all that sort of stuff. I didn't tell my parents, didn't tell my children, didn't tell anybody uh, until it was actually announced on the BBC, you know, announced um, uh, uh, worldwide. And then I could tell people. I fixed up a Zoom with my mother because I was in a different country. I fixed up a Zoom with her and I told her, uh, Mum, I'm going to be, uh, my, my parents both there, and I said, um, I'm going to be singing at the coronation. And my mother went, Crikey. You know, over, over the years, I've interviewed a number of, of opera singers and they all say the same thing. And that is that the pressure uh, as an opera singer is that you have almost zero margin for error. So if you're a rock star, you know, and you sing a, a dud note, uh, Wembley Stadium, wherever it may be, people kind of forgive you. But as, a, as a, an opera singer, you have no margin for error and you have to, as one singer once said to me, you have to bend it like Beckham every time. I've always, I've always remembered that phrase. And so you've got that moment where you are about to open your mouth. And of course, you trust your instrument, you trust your muscle, you trust that it's going to come out okay. That's your day job. That, that's what you do day in, day out. At the coronation, you sung at the critical moment. It was literally um, the moment where everyone had said, God save the king, may, may the king um, live forever. And then in comes Roddy. Even for someone of your experience of knowing that you have to hit that note when you open your mouth, that moment must have really had your heart racing. Well, yes, it, it, I was 
preoccupied with would I remember the words? Would I get the words? I mean, it was very simple. The piece I was singing was incredibly short. But there's room for a senior moment and for me just to forget what my name is, you know, and just have a complete memory wipe. But as soon as I stood up into position, you're quite right. There's a lot of training that goes into this job, you know, 20, 30 years that I've been doing it. And it does feel normal and natural for me to stand up and sing. That is what I do. It's not a surprise. If I'd been asked to do a handstand at that point, then there could have been a lot of room for nerves. But I'm just <laughs> doing the thing that I do. I was asked to sing, and the piece was not difficult. It wasn't high, and it wasn't very long. So, you know, on paper, I should have been able to do it. And actually, come the moment, I thought, yeah, no, no I've, I've got this. It's going to be okay. And then I could relax and enjoy it. Yeah. And you absolutely did do it. There is a link between the coronation and where we're going to head to in talking about the, this piece that you've composed for the festival, because I know that you're very, very passionate about bringing down the barriers in the arts. You want everyone to love opera. You want everyone to sing along to Carmen or whatever it may be. Um, You don't want there to be this iron curtain between the arts and the rest of the world. And of course, the coronation, by bringing that kind of music into the coronation, really does open out, uh, in your case, your artistry to to a huge wider audience. Yeah, that that is true. That is something that interests me greatly. And it's not as if it's not as if I want everybody to love what it is that I love. What, it is, what I want is everybody to be given an equal chance to experience it and make up their own mind and say, yeah, I've heard that. I, you know what? I don't think it's really my bag. I'm, I'm more interested in this. And that's fantastic. What, I, what, what saddens me is when people write something off or have it written off for them by, you know, I don't know, maybe sometimes teachers at school, or maybe it's, um, maybe it's the media, or maybe it's an influencer, I don't know. But when, when they have something that's written off for them, and they say, oh, I'm not the sort of person who should be going to opera. It's not for my kind of, you know, it's not for my type, it's not, it's not for my class, it's not for my color, it's not for well, any of these things. I think that's a massive shame. So uh, w- there are so many life experiences to have on this planet. Who knows what's going to be your thing? And who knows, what was it? You should try everything once except um, Morris dancing. Anyway, we'll, we won't go into that quotation <laughs> too far, but, but um, you should try. You should be open to try everything and, and work out for yourself what you enjoy. And as you, as you well know, the word opera or the words classical music cover so much that if you hear a, I don't know, what am I going to pick? If you hear a Handel opera one day in Italian and you think, uh, a bit dull, it's not for me, and that's not their bag. Therefore, you write off all opera after that. That's a shame. It's the same for me. This is get my children rolling their eyes. If I, if I said, I don't like pop music, I mean, for a start, they would look at me and say, Dad, pop music, what does that even mean? Are you, are you you're trying to clump grunge with hip-hop, with Taylor Swift, with, you know, with jazz, you know, what does popular music even mean? So I would say the same, classical music, what does that even mean? And I I would suggest that there is something out there that we might care to label classical music if we can't think of another term. There's something out there that is going to light a fire within any person, and they've just got to be brought into contact with it. That's my, that's my passion. And of course, the most important thing is, yes, it is really vital that we all think that we can have an open mind and listen to stuff and explore stuff. But if that stuff is not openly available, 
that's when you have a problem. And that's why the festival's so amazing because it brings so many different forms of, and I'm going to use the word the arts in its widest sense, because it's not even a pure arts festival, um, but it brings so many elements together and makes them accessible. And that's why it's important because it's all very well saying, you know, go and go and give opera a listen, but actually it's not always easy to to go to a venue, for example, that, that would have opera and give you that chance to be moved in the way that, listen, I love going to see an opera. It, it moves me, but it, it requires a certain effort and, and a certain access to be able to go and see it. And, and that's why this project, I find really, really interesting that, that you're doing for the festival. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, opera and we may recognise arias and, Ultimately, this whole piece of work is around probably one of the most famous pieces of music ever written um, in terms of in terms of music that is in our mind. I mean, I've seen Amazing Grace performed uh, as part of Coldplay's stage show. Obviously, I love Judy Collins. I love that version. We all know this piece of music. It belongs to all of us. Yes. And I'm going to have to leap right in there right, right away because... I'm a musician, so I respond to Amazing Grace as a piece of music. The music we're talking about is a folk song that was attributed to the hymn that was Amazing Grace. It was attributed to that sometime later, who knows when. And as a folk song, goodness even knows if it was actually written or just developed or just kind of, you know, word of mouth, and eventually the two become synonymous. And when I hear that melody, I know exactly, you know, the first two or three notes, I'm, I'm, I know exactly where I am. And, you know, it could be at a presidential inauguration or it could be at a funeral or something like that. And it is deeply moving. But I was brought into this project not to celebrate the melody, the folk melody that became Amazing Grace. I was brought in to celebrate the words that were written 250 years ago in this, in, in this village of Olney outside Milton Keynes. And the brief was very specific. We are, we are, and we're not even, it's a very interesting, we're not celebrating those words because those words were written by John Newton, who was a, began his life, well, began his career as an enthusiastic slave ship captain. He experienced a conversion to Christianity and then at some time, while still trading in slavery, then had a, conver a second conversion about slavery and became an abolitionist. But nonetheless, the text of Amazing Grace and his history is something that, that needs a lot of unpacking. So, in the brief, two things were central. The first is, this is a commemorative work, but not a celebration. So I heard that loud and clear. The second is, this is to do with the text of Amazing Grace, not that melody. And that melody is so strong that we all know, if, for example, I wrote a piece that was you know, 45 minutes long, and in the last movement, I got everybody, including the audience, to sing Amazing Grace to that, that melody. That's all people will remember on the way out. They'll go away humming it in their cars in the car park and they'll leave. And the tune wins again. Because I say, I say again because I'm a musician, so the tune always wins. I am not so good about the text, the actual text of Amazing Grace. I can, I, if I start singing it, I'll start going um and ah, but I'll be able to sing the tune to the end, multiple verses. So what we are marking is the anniversary of those words. It was very important to me that I slip away from that folk melody as quickly as possible. And I was able to do this by being an outsider. I'm not from Milton Keynes. I've got no connection with, with any of the, the bodies, the museum who are commissioning this piece. And the people who thought this would be a lovely thing to observe this, this anniversary, how are we going to do it? Uh, they hired me in. And I hired in my librettist because I didn't know what story to tell. In this 250th anniversary, it would have been a very easy thing to do a kind of biopic of John Newton in musical form and tell the story of how he 
had this conversion and uh, on board this boat and prayed, please save me from this and I will, I'll be a good boy afterwards, all that sort of stuff. It would make a great biopic sort of cantata opera. But that's not what we're about. This is not about John Newton. As I say, he's got a, he's got a checkered history. So, and, and there are many other people and many other responses to this text that are of interest to us right now, including responses that are anti the text. Not all voices are for it. So let's talk about the piece itself. Uh, you mentioned the words. They've been written by Romy Smith. Talk me through what we can expect at this premiere. Well, you can expect a lot of questions. For one thing, um, we had a working title, just AG250. You know, we had that working title for ages. And eventually, Romy came to me and said, I've thought of a title. I want to call it Forever as a question. So it's Forever with a question mark at the end. And you can already immediately realize that this piece is eternal. It's going to be with us forever. And then you go, or is it? So that's the first question. The title of the piece is a question. And then Romy has has provided me with 10 movements. Each movement starts with a question, which she's going to ask. Um, and that's going to be you know, broadcast, as it were. These are questions that she's asked of different people in the Milton Keynes, the Olney and the Milton Keynes community, and much further beyond. She's asked for different testimonies, if you like, different reactions to this text, what it means to different people, the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. So your audiences will sit back and they will hear musical, my musical response to setting the text to uh, Romy's words. And they can also expect it to be local because part of the, people's, the group of people singing this piece is a specially created gospel community choir founded for the occasion, which is brilliant, just taking singers from all around the area. Theirs is a new, and I have to say, very enthusiastic response. I've been to see them rehearse, and they were on fire, just a brilliant team of people. And then we've also got a couple of soloists, the mezzo Andrea Baker and the tenor Ron Ronald Sam. And we've also got the ethnic majority orchestra, Chineke, who are providing instrumentalists for this. The instrumentalists include um, classical musicians, so you've got string quartet with double bass as well, string quartet. You've got um, you know, flute and trumpet and trombone, that sort of things. But you've also got uh, electric bass. You've got a keyboard, electric keyboard that can play anything, you know, piano, harpsichord, organ, all sorts of stuff. And you've got a, a percussionist who's going to be playing everything up to and including a whoopee cushion. So you've got a wide range of styles. So when the questions come and they are answered by these, these kind of, anonymized testimonies. Romy has turned her interviews into poetry. And so I think a number of people who've, who've testified, if you can call it that, are actually going to be present in the audience. And they will recognize their words, but they have been, get this, Romified, that's my new word of the day, and will come across as a poetic response. Uh, it's going to be very exciting. So the piece of music is about the people. The people are in the audience. It's going to be challenging, both in terms of the text and in terms of the music. How do you ensure that, that piece of music really brings out this aspect of, of challenging, of, of thinking about the answers to these questions? Well, the, the first thing for me is just to set Romy's words because and, and set them faithfully so that they're audible and they make Romy's argument clear. So that's the first thing I do in the nuts and bolts of how I go about that. If I just remain true to Romy's words, which are brilliant, absolutely brilliant, then I'll have done my job. And the second thing I do is I cannot have a piece about Amazing Grace without at some point considering the folk melody that we all know and love. But it, it, it's in the major. 
I'm going to play it here. I have to start with that, but I start with it really low down in a solo double bass. I think we're quite used to that piece being very exultant, very um, spiritual, very noble. And to have it low down on this bass instrument right at the beginning, it sounds already like a question mark. And it's not long, I think it's the second movement, before I put it into the minor. And off it whirdles, you know, into different keys and pastures new. And for me as a listener, immediately that last part you played is saying something's not right here. Yeah. Some, you, but by the sheer tone of what you created there, it's saying to me, this is not the happy story you were expecting. Yes. To be fair, t- taking something from the major and putting it into the minor is, is kind of one of the oldest tricks in the book. And, and I do certainly acknowledge that. But it allows me to acknowledge the melody and say, yes, this is a piece about Amazing Grace, everybody. Let's, let's just know that. And then let's move on. And that's kind of exactly what I do. The piece moves on. In fact, the second movement, the first time one of our soloists steps up to give a testimony, um, it tells the story of someone who's come to England very recently, actually from Ukraine. Uh, And I thought that was a masterstroke of Romy's to begin with someone uh, from outside. Romy's from outside. She lives in Leeds. I'm from outside. I live in the Midlands. Londoner by birth, I live in the Midlands. And the first person she really explores in depth is from Ukraine. At the end of that movement, I was able to quote Ukrainian folk song from the Dnipro River because the poem begins in Dnipro in actual fact. Uh, um, and then fast forwards to Milton Keynes and how this, this person was accepted and, and welcomed into Milton Keynes and into Olney. And, um, and they're kind of wearing amazing grace like one of those shiny reflective blankets you get at the end of marathons you sort of they're wrapped around it this protective clothing and so you have this um um uh, beautiful hymn it goes like this I am told there's a lot of Ukrainian folk melodies that are in the minor and are very, <laughs> are very sad. It does feel sad. Considering that is the river that has just um, uh, flooded uh, down in the south of Ukraine and, and, and caused, some, you know, after the dam was, it, it was, was blown up, it, it has this very particular relevance right here, right now, um, for those people who've managed to escape. What is absolutely clear talking to you and listening to you is how easy it is going to be to really connect on a very deep level with what you've done here. I mean, I, I'm a large chunk of my family is from Ukraine, but I'm going back three or four generations. I'm I'm, I'm a Jewish immigrant. Well, my family were, were Jewish immigrants, um, so you know we've got family from Ukraine and Lithuania, and and even just hearing you play that uh, threw me into that uh, sense of 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 coming from the outside of 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 where are your roots? What are our roots? And and you know how do we how do we view our roots going forward? And listen, any guest's job is to is to in effect sell what they've done and, and make us want to be part of it. But you've done a remarkable job here because 
I'm just sitting here thinking, I absolutely want to hear this piece of music. And, and, and I have to thank you for that. I wouldn't normally do it in this way, but I have to thank you because you've really brought it to life. I do have one thing I want to ask you, though, because you mentioned that you want people to not leave thinking about the, um, the hook of Amazing Grace. Is there a hook in this piece that runs through that, that we might come out humming? Uh, there is, actually. Um, I, and I've, um, I've written it into the final movement in the hope that it will stick in people's memories, at least as far as the car park. You know, once they start driving home, I wouldn't be surprised if everybody starts singing Amazing Grace anyway, because it's the, the melody and those words together are, um, are a wonderful combination and nothing I'm going to write is going to replace that. But I have a lot of, of tactics. Actually, there are methods of composition I've used that I borrow from, you know, I borrow from the greats, Henry Purcell. Henry Purcell loved a good ground bass. And um, I've um, written the last movement, a ground bass, and just the whole of the last movement is, is set on that. And it also gives me a good a chance to have the um, chorus, my lovely community chorus, sing a, a, a response to a call and response. And it's the sort of thing, great thing about call and response is once you've done it a few times, there's a chance that people in the audience might pick it up. Um, who knows if it'll become a community sing song? Maybe not on the first go around, but in the future, I'd love to think that um, that future audiences, if I should be so lucky, will have the chance to take part in this as well. Um, it, it, we, we can all sing. We can all sing. And, and, I, and I, okay, I still meet constantly people who say to me at any age, they say to me, oh, yeah, I was told at school, uh, you don't sing. You know, you're a dreadful noise. You can't sing. Um, and, and that has gone into them deeply and they have never sung in public since they might sing in the shower by themselves or they might sing in the car along to the radio at their own pitch when they think nobody's listening but they never sing in public because they've been scarred by someone at an early age and, and i always think it's a little bit like saying to a 12 year old don't drive a car you can't drive it you, you, you drive so badly on your bicycle don't drive a car ever don't kick a football exactly don't kick a football exactly and at some point later on you um you go and learn and someone teaches you, someone takes the time and teaches you. And then suddenly, you know, later on, you can drive a car and you can kick a football. Um, you just need someone with patience to take you seriously at whatever age. And you need somehow to get beyond the moment where someone has said to you, you cannot do this. You shouldn't do this. It'll be better for everybody if you didn't do this. What I can really see here, Roddy, with this piece of music, that the performance, the involvement of, of Romy, the involvement of Chinica, the involvement of all these wonderful artists, is that you've gone from a piece of music which, for me, speaks of communion, speaks of community, speaks of numbers. Amazing Grace for me is always about people and large numbers of people. And you've created a piece of music which looks at community today and people today. Uh, and I really get this strong sense, and I'm sure you'll agree, that this concert, this piece of music, this premiere will really have that strong sense of communion. Mm. I really hope so, um, because that was, again, one of the things that was asked of me at the beginning. I, with the founding of the, uh, of the choir for this occasion, um, they, they wanted something that people would take part in now. So we will observe this anniversary. We will ask these questions. And then in 50 years, 150 years, another 250 years, we can ask the question again. So that premiere of Forever will take place at the Stables on Saturday, July the 22nd. Tickets and more information 
can be found at the If Milton Keynes International Festival website, ifmiltonkeynes.org. And for more information about that festival, don't forget to check out the special festival edition of Turn Up the Volume, which came out a few weeks ago. I do hope you enjoyed this bonus podcast. As ever, please follow the podcast to be notified of all future episodes of Turn Up the Volume. Speaking of which, there'll be some great guests for you to discover in the coming months. Do come and enjoy the festival. There really is something for everyone. Until the next time here on Turn Up the Volume, from me, Nick Coffer, it's goodbye for now. Goodbye for now.